in our culture, we, despite the fact that we've got a pretty um, militantly oppositional culture to things Christian, to Jesus in general and the church, we somehow are spiritual people in some sense of the word. We like to inject spiritual speak into a lot of the things that we do. Things that have no spiritual real connotations uh, whatsoever. We, we sort of um, infuse with, with spiritual ideas. Uh, how many of you guys have been watching this week's uh, U.S. Open in Flushing Meadows? Tennis fans. All right, sweet. Um, who has been the story, the story of, um, at least for the first week and a half, the story of the U.S. Open? I guess there have been a lot of stories. Uh, I was thinking of Melanie Udan. Melanie Udan is the 17-year-old uh, American from Marietta, Georgia, who knocked off like three of the top-ranked Russians in a row and just played some amazing tennis, some gutsy tennis. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what this girl's spiritual life is like, if anything, but I did notice that there's something that was written on her shoe, which they kept drawing attention to the whole week. What was that? Believe, believe, right? And then on the last day, um, that her last match, her whole family showed up with black t-shirts with big, you know, yellow letters, believe. And I knew that's it. They jinxed it. You know, <laughs> this, is, this is it. Whenever the whole family gets into it, everyone starts wearing t-shirts. It's downhill from there. And she lost. Um, and so I wrote the family and explained, no, uh, no. But I thought this is interesting. You know, people were just, this was, this was a real inspirational rallying thing. Believe, believe, believe. And my question was, believe in what? You know, what, I wonder what this belief is, is in and what they mean by um, belief. And, you know, really, belief, when we think about belief, especially for, in, in a Christian circle, when we think about belief, belief is, um, is a hard thing. Faith, belief is a hard thing for us. And we talk about it, um, but I think even in my own life, I mostly pay a lot of lip service to, to the idea of, uh, of belief. And in truth, I think we're probably people sometimes of very little faith, not people of really strong and, and, and great faith. You know, when, uh, when things are going well, it's really easy for us to say, I believe in God. I know he is there. When the poop hits the fan, what happens to our faith? It tanks, doesn't it? And, and the first questions that sort of crop up in our mind, even if we don't want to let them come out of our lips, are, God, what are you doing? You know, God, uh, are you there? In practical life, we're people who, when things start to go just a little bit awry, when things, you know, when, when the, the proverbial car starts to kind of go off the road, we immediately reach over and try to grab a hold of the wheel and take over. Um, it's just human nature in our fallenness. I remember learning how to drive, and, um, and this was a scary, frightening prospect. I mean, in some ways, I, I totally understand my parents' hesitancy to let me drive. Um, my mom was the one who first decided she was going to help me learn how to drive. And so I remember taking this car out the first day, right in our own little neighborhood, and we start driving back some of the back streets, and my mom is the wrong person to go driving with. And so she's sitting next to me, and we're driving down this road. I'm talking like 15 miles an hour, you know, doing nothing. And on the side of, like, the curb, you know, a little grass patch by the sidewalk, there's a ball. It's not moving. It's just a ball. 
And my mom, like, you know, I'm talking 60, 70 yards away. Joshua, there's a ball. There's a ball. There's a ball. And it starts raising an octave every time. There's a ball, there's a ball, there's a ball. And there's, there's a kid, there's a kid, there's a kid, you know? And I'm like, Mom, stop freaking out. And all of a sudden, she reaches over and she grabs the steering wheel. And she starts taking it, like, fighting for me, you know, with the wheel. I stop the car. Mom, get out. <laughs> Please get out. And, and you know, that's, that's my mom, but it's also illustrative of what happens to, to us. My grandmother, my nana, who's like 90 next in, in January, old, right? probably shouldn't, maybe shouldn't be driving. I don't know, because we're always like, man, how does she get over to the house? It's, it's a miracle. But she was driving one day with my mom not too long ago, and she actually dropped my mom off, and my dad had to come pick her up. <laughs> same thing, same thing. So nothing's changed there. I mean, we're people, when we start to feel nervous, we always believe that we drive best. My life is in my hands, and I'm not letting go of this wheel. No way. And we do that a lot with God, too. And we just, we only trust the circumstances of our life so far before we say, God, you're clearly out of your league here. Let me take over. Let me drive. I know what I'm doing. It's just fear. This fear of letting your life be in someone else's hands. Now, we're in the book of Hebrews, right? Thousands, you know, of years ago. But they're no different than we. And they're still human. And, and they're plagued by, by this syndrome of being fallen humans. They're not certain of where things are going. We've been talking about this as we've been talking through Hebrews. I mean, here's the people who've known their tradition for thousands of years, the, the, the traditions of their fathers, and they're abandoning those traditions, and they're stepping out and following Christ, and they're getting persecuted for it. They probably witnessed the death and the execution of both Peter and Paul. This is rough rough stuff they're going through. It's not a matter of, are we even going to be able to pay rent or, or pay our mortgage or put food on the table? This is, are we even going to live to see tomorrow? And there's an alternative out there. Just go back. Just go back to doing what you were. Why step out in faith and risk your life and, and, and follow Christ? Why would you do that when you can play it safe? Where is God in it? is their question. How do I know I can let him have the wheel? How do I know he's even driving? Maybe we're just in the wrong car altogether. That's their thinking. So Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart 
that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. So I want to look at this passage in, in this way, and I kind of want to work backwards because I think the author set that up really nicely for us. Three things, all right? First, we are heading out of exile. We are heading out of exile. Us too, not just the Hebrews. We are heading out of exile, and unbelief will not get us anywhere. It will not put us where we need to be at the end of this destination. Second, the cautionary tale. Unbelief stopped Israel dead in their tracks. Unbelief. And then the third, keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the example par excellence. He is the poster guy for faith in God. He completed the journey of faith. So follow him. Keep your eyes on him who has already done it. So first, we're heading out of exile. The story um, of the New Testament remember, is the story of the Old Testament. The story hasn't changed. The whole world has been in exile since Adam and Eve and the garden. When they got booted out of the garden, they were kicked away from God's presence and basically sentenced to death, to spiritual death, to die, to no longer be alive in God. And Jesus comes and John the Baptist before him proclaiming that Jesus is the one who is leading the exodus. The world has been in exile all the way up until him. Now look, we live in a very pluralistic culture, right? I mean, if you go down to Asheville, you'll see a zillion bumper stickers identifying a zillion different ways of making sense or meaning out of the world. And ultimately, here's what the world recognizes. Look, this world is flawed, this world is fallen, this world is wrong, and we're sick too. How do we see our way through? How do we see our way out? And, and everyone's offering an exodus of some kind. And Jesus is offering not just an exodus. He's not just leading an exodus. He's leading the exodus, the only real exodus. It, it's not about how sincere your faith is in other things. And it's not about how sincere you might be. It's not about how strong you believe in something. It's about one guy leading one exodus. And this is the only one who's leading us through. And the call is, if you want to go out, if you want to come home from exile, this is the one to follow. No one else is leading the exodus. They're leading exoduses of some kind, but none of them land and arrive at the Father. It's not about the degree of your faith. Okay? It, there, there are numerous you know, degrees of faith within this room. There are some who have just impeccable faith, honorable faith, faith that I look up to uh, for me as an example. And then there are faiths, some of us who have weak faith in Jesus. 
It's not about though, the degree of your faith. You know, believing in nothing is, no matter how strong your belief is, is still nothing. It's like one times zero is still what? Zero. A hundred times zero is still zero. It doesn't multiply. Nothing really happens there. It's still empty. One of my uh, favorite characters in all of television time is George Costanza. And there's a line that I remember from one of the episodes where George says to Jerry, Jerry says, how do you do it? How do you bald face lie at every turn? And he says, Jerry, here's my secret. It's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> it's not a lie if, if you don't believe it's a lie. And it's like, everyone knows, like, ah, that's not true, right? That just, I mean, doesn't, just because you want it to be true doesn't make it true, right? Think about um, the Matrix, right? Remember that conversation from the first one? The other two stunk. The first one, right? Morpheus is sitting down with, with, um, with Neo. And what's he say to him? Neo says, I don't believe it. And Morpheus says, simply because you do not believe it's true doesn't make it untrue. And the opposite is also true. Simply because you believe something is true doesn't make it in itself true. So belief in, in nothing, no matter how strong your belief is, is still emptiness. So we're not talking about degrees of faith. Zach, last week when he was preaching, said and quoted from, from Hebrews, pay attention to what you've heard. Pay attention to what you've heard. And the scripture is saying, look, Jesus, and only Jesus, is leading the true exodus out of this prison that we live in as fallen human beings, sentenced to death. Die, dead already is what Paul causes. You are already dead in your, in your sin. Jesus is leading the way out. But we haven't arrived yet at our final destination. The exodus has just begun in the grand scheme of things. It's not over yet. We are, we are coming out of death and we are walking towards resurrection and new creation. This, this understanding that what awaits for us is an entirely new me, an entirely new you, fashioned after the image of Jesus, resurrected to new life with a new body, something we won't even see on this side of, of living, something that will happen later. And we're out of, you know, we're, we're moving out of slavery to the world over here, and we're heading in a completely opposite direction towards freedom in Christ. And, you know, the way that, that the scriptures even tell it, Freedom in Christ is slavery to Christ. It's a good thing. You are a slave to one or the other. You either are a slave to the world, you're bound by it, or you are bound by Jesus. And they keep saying, you want to be bound by Jesus because this is the way to go. This is the way you want to go. Bound to him, a slave to him, a slave to righteousness. That doesn't mean I walk around trying to be perfect all the time. That means I just keep on pursuing and following after the call of Jesus and the way that he's calling me on the road that he's paved. If you think about the world, I mean, just think about, how many of you guys did not grow up in Christian homes? Just raise your hand so I can see where you're at. I didn't. I grew up with a bunch of pagans um, and unbelievers and people who suffered from post-Catholic uh, disorder, post-Catholic disorder, I guess they call it. My, my dad was just telling stories last night about how the nuns beat him um, when he went to school. And he's an atheist. But I want to talk about the world in general. If you've come out of, you know, the world where I, I've come from into faith, it's a lot easier for us, I think, to recognize that the world 
is something that binds you. It's something that enslaves you. The world basically says, look, look to me. I will give you your identity. I will identify all the categories for which you can define yourself. And so, I mean, it could be by your job, right? You're an engineer, a teacher, a contractor, insurance, real estate, right? One of the first questions we ask people when we meet them for the first time is what do we say? What do you do, right? It's almost identical with who you are. Um, sometimes you, it's your role in life. I'm a father, you know, I'm a, I'm a mother, a sister, a brother, um, something. We, you know, just that, that role, that category in life sometimes becomes something that defines us. Maybe it's your nationality, you know? You're, uh, you're American, you're, you're Russian, you're Australian. There are other ways to define uh, who we are. Maybe it's your favorite team, you know? Um, you're, you, I got Cubs paraphernalia and Steeler stuff all over my, my place. And people go, oh, you're a Steeler fan. I don't really want that to be my first identifier. Like, that's, my, that's it, that's me. Is that could be on my gravestone? Josh died, a rabid Steeler fan, you know? Um, no but I've been to some funerals where it's like, this is really all we got to say, you know? This person was really loyal to and a tremendous fan of this. And you're going, oh man, I pray to God no one ever says that uh, about me and, and tries to make meaning out of it. Um, your favorite cause, your favorite activity, your favorite sport, whatever. There's a zillion things the world tells us, like here's some categories for you to fit yourself into and that will give you identity. That will be who you are. And when you subject yourself to that, what you find is you're bound to it. There's no escape. You keep looking for the world to give you a new category, a new identity. And then it's kind of lonely because you find that you're one of like 80 million. And there's nothing really unique about being a fan of the Chicago Cubs. As a slave to the world, you only identify yourself through what the world has to offer you. Only Jesus transcends and breaks out of all the world's categories. I mean, think about what Paul says. In him, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male and female, or any other categories. I mean, Paul's not just saying, hey, let's all be, you know, one and together, and it's all cool and groovy. What he's saying is, look, all the things that you formerly once defined yourself by, those no longer apply. The world does not tell you who you are. Your identity is now in me. And I break out of all the boundaries that the world has to offer you. You are not a slave to this world. It has no hold on you anymore. God has a hold on you. If Jesus, and think about Jesus. I mean, as you read through the scriptures, it, and you should be reading through the gospels, hopefully regularly, because it's wonderful to be in touch with and seeing the stories of Jesus. Every time Jesus does something, goes somewhere, everyone's standing around going, who is this guy? Where is he from? He just doesn't get it. You've not fit in. Even his disciples take him aside and go, look, Jesus, we, we just think you don't understand how things go around here. Let us teach you. Laughable, right? But that's their, that's their mentality. Jesus isn't fitting in. He's getting in trouble with the religious authorities at every turn. Like, hey, keep a low profile. Here's how we do things around here. You should do these too. But no, that's not the way it goes. Jesus breaks through all the boundaries and the confines of the world. And if we're in him, which is what salvation is, is basically hiding my life in Christ and saying he is going to be the one who shapes my identity, who gives me meaning. If we do that and commit our life to him, then that same thing is true of us. Now, we no longer fit in the world, aliens and strangers. You're a slave to something. 
all of us are. So what is it that we're a slave to? Are we really a slave to Jesus? Or are we a slave to the world? I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him, Jesus, take us over, the more truly ourselves we truly become. But the more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by the constraints and the confines of the world. Jesus is leading us out of slavery to the world, and he's leading us into freedom in him. And at the end, we're going to look like he does in our own unique ways, like a person who this world just can't nail down, just can't peg, just can't figure out. There is a destination, and we are on the road. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. We are, there is a destination, and we are on the road. We have to keep moving forward. Don't stop. Don't turn back. Keep moving forward. And the, the way that he wants to say this is move forward. The way to move forward is by faith, which is a strange thing for us to get our hands around especially for Hebrews, they were so accustomed to the law and they made it into something that it wasn't supposed to ever really be. And so now someone's telling them, move forward by faith. But what's that mean? Again, you know, so many confusing ideas about what it means to believe. This past week, and Zach, I'm going to rat you out, we were at home watching on TLC's Design Star. Yes, I admit it. And I deliberately did not wear pink today. Uh, <laughs> if you ever watch the show, it's a great show. It's wonderful, really entertaining, get lots of great ideas, very creative people, all designing stuff. Rooms, landscapes, all kinds of cool stuff, you know. And so we're watching this late at night, and their task is to go over to a celebrity's house and to redo a room of their choice on a $20,000 budget, right? $20,000 for a room. So they go over to, and this is really funny because this is, I know, you're going to think like, man, you're really girly, uh, but I'm not. Um, they go over to two of the celebrities we know pretty well, or at least I knew pretty well because they were from my era. One of them was Tiffany Amber Thiessen. From what show? Thank you, 90210, yeah. And then guess who the other celebrity was? Jason Priestley, also of 90210. So it's like a 90210 reunion, you know? So they go over to Tiffany Amber Thiessen's house, and that's the house I want to focus on. And they say, well, what do you want? What do you want us to do with this room? And here's what she says. And I'm not, not being judgmental. I'm just evaluating. Okay? She says, we really believe in being eco-friendly. So we want an eco-friendly room. We want eco-friendly materials. I want you to spend $20,000 on eco-friendly materials in a room that is the size of my first floor, right? I'm thinking, okay, you believe in being eco-friendly. Because that's what she said. We really believe in being eco-friendly. And I'm thinking, okay, something doesn't match up, all right? Because eco-friendliness and at least 4,000, you know, square foot homes don't quite go, and living in LA, the smoggiest city in the US, these don't really go hand in hand very well, do they? So I want to jump in and say, well, tell me what you mean by believe. Please tell me what you mean by believe. And I think what most people mean when they say believe is I find the idea appealing, right? It's an appealing idea. I like that idea. I like the notion 
of, of being like that or doing that. But belief really isn't, I, I think, an accurate word to describe what it is. Wouldn't you agree? Belief just isn't quite the right word. Belief isn't a sentiment. Belief isn't a notion. Belief is not, uh, you know, uh, some kind of a cognizant assent to an appealing idea. Belief, as the Bible understands it, and as I'm learning every day to understand it, belief is a trusting response. A trusting response is the Hebrew idea of belief, the Christian idea of belief, a trusting response. Christ calls me out onto the road that he has blazed for me and for you, the road to becoming more like him. And he says, come, he calls us. Now, each of our roads is different. Okay, and this is just a little aside, something we need to really, I think, respect and understand. Each of us is coming from a different place heading towards Christ. We're not all coming from the same place. We don't all have the same call. We don't all have the same path cut before us, but each of our paths ends in Jesus. There is a call for you, and there is a call for me, and they will most likely not look the same. They'll look very different because you're different, and I'm different, and Jesus works with each one of us personally in our walk, calling us to him. Osgina says, only when we respond to Christ and follow his call do we become our real selves. Only when we respond to Christ and follow his call do we become our real selves. Uh, I love to quote pop culture to you guys because I love to observe it and I love to watch what people are doing in this frantic, really pitiable, pitiable search for their real self. Everyone keeps trying to find something that they can identify themselves and say, that's me. And all the while, I feel, I'm talking to people saying, no, that is not you. You are not your favorite sports team. You are not your favorite sporting activity. You are not your favorite clothes. You are not your reputation at school. You are not where you eat at the lunch table. You are not those things. You are not ultimately your, your father's son or your mother's daughter. You are Christ's. And if there is meaning, if there is hope for you, if you want to find you, you're going to have to find it in Christ. You're not going to find it in any other place. It's there. And Jesus is keeps, you know, he keeps holding it out saying, come find me and you will find you. Give yourself away to me and I will give you the real you. But you have to trust me. You have to follow me. You have to respond to the call that I've given you, a trusting response. This is why Apollo, the way he writes Hebrews, is, is so urgent. I mean, he's basically, will you really, having come and tasted and looked at Jesus and seen the real you that is in him, will you really turn back away from that? Because of these external circumstances out here that are plaguing your life? Don't let those things get in the way. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep following him. Keep responding to him. That's why he quotes this story here uh, from, from the Exodus about Israel. This is um, really from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during a time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me. 
and for 40 years saw what I did. And, and what Apollos is doing here, and so bear with me here as I kind of help put you on track with where this, it's a little bit of a, ma- a map to follow. All right, Psalm 95 is this psalm that gives us a little more clarity as to where this incident happens. It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts have gone astray, who do not know my ways. And if you have, you know, any, like a helpful Bible, down on the bottom, there might be a little footnote that says, Meribah means quarreling and Massa means testing. And if you have a really good Bible, it gives you a reference. Mine doesn't. And it takes you to Exodus chapter 17. So go to Exodus chapter 17 if you've got that and in your Bibles. If not, I'll read it aloud. You'll be okay. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, because this is, this, this is the episode that Apollos is, is referencing. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And then here's the equivalent. Why do you put the Lord... God, Yahweh, to the test. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're about ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And that last line really is um, the real issue. God, I mean, here's the circumstance. God has led them out of um, slavery in Egypt, and he's bringing them out to a land which they haven't seen yet, and already, this is freedom like they've never known. But the road out is treacherous. It's frightening. They don't know where it goes. They don't know where it leads. The only guy who seems to have any clue is this Moses guy. We're not really sure about him. They are camping then in Rephidim on the way out, and there's no water to drink, and the people are fighting with Moses. Give us some water. And then the question Did you bring us out into the desert? Did God bring us out here just so that we and our children and our cattle could die of thirst? What kind of a God is this? And the summary statement is the Israelites tested the Lord by saying, is he with us or not? And the psalm says they hardened their hearts. That's what this is. This, this questioning of God in this way, is the Lord among us or not? They've hardened their hearts. They can't see around the corner. They don't know what's waiting for them. And they just freeze up in unbelief. We fear, right, what we don't know. And we're only going along for it as, as far, generally, our lives are. We only go with something, along with something, as far as we can see. And when it, it hooks a turn somewhere and we can't see around the corner, what's our tendency? 
stop, right? We don't know what's around that corner. We don't know what waits for us. Who knows what awaits for us? And we freeze up. Our natural inclination is to take over, to grab a hold of the steering wheel, and either to put the brakes on or turn the thing around and go back the way we came because we at least know that road, right? It's very much like if you ever get, you know, you're going to a new place, literally in your car, and you get out your, your directions, you know, from MapQuest, if you don't have like a car, Garmin or whatever it is, you know, and you're driving there, and on the way there, it feels like it takes an eternity, doesn't it? Everything is a mystery. Where does this lead? What turn is this? And yet, what about the way home? It's a piece of cake. I know that landmark. I know that landmark. I know that street. I know the way. And it seems a lot shorter. It seems a lot shorter because all the while we're there, our anxiety is getting the better of us. We don't know where it leads. We don't know where it goes. The trouble is, is life with God isn't like that. I mean, it can't be like that. We don't, we're not called to stop at the turn of the road and go back or to freeze up. Faith is turning the wheel over to God and saying, you drive. There are a lot of stickers uh, on cars in the South that say, God is my, what? Co-pilot. And you know what? That's not bad. It's just incomplete. God is my pilot. I've given him the wheel. I don't even have wheels to get, you know, like in the, who's taking driver's ed? Someone's taking driver's ed here. Right now, who's taking it now? Someone's in class, right? Alexis, okay. Kendra, you too? All right, and I want a phone call when you guys are on the road so I can stay put, all right? <laughs> I mean, you're in that car, right, for driver's ed, and there's a teacher next to you, right? And what do they have on their dashboard? Steering wheel and brakes, because they sure as heck don't trust you yet, right? Right, for, for good reason. Um, so they have control also, and that's really what a co-pilot has. There are two sets of controls in the cockpit. Life with God is, you know what? There is just one set of controls, and it's yours, God, and I'm not going to reach over and grab a hold of that wheel, which is so hard for us to not do. Robbie Zacharias, who's really become a favorite writer of mine, says this. He says, the Bible is a book on life building, and it tells us that the rudder and the sail, the steering wheel, whatever other metaphor you want to throw in there, they remain in God's control and that we enter the high seas with the understanding that we must trust him. So he says, I pondered the story of Noah and this is a trip. The Bible supplies every detail of the ark. How high, how wide, what kind of wood, the comprehensive blueprint. Yet two details are conspicuously absent. No sail and no rudder. God has made it, he says, imperative in the design of life that we become willing to trust beyond ourselves. But to what? And this is where I think he opened his chapter. Jesus, fix your eyes on Jesus. We have to look to something, right? And we have to have some object of our faith. Please, in your interactions daily with people, we interact with a lot of people. I want you to, I mean, interact graciously with people who are unbelievers, please, and believers alike, compassionately. 
But when you come into contact with people who basically tell you, look, I just believe in a lot of things and it's okay with me. You've got to say kindly, can I please object? You know that's not a good answer. In your heart of hearts, do you really honestly believe that faith in nothing is good just because you have faith in it? You have to at least lead people, put Jesus on the table to at least ask them, you must have belief in something, someone. When the Israelites are leaving and they're on this journey out of exile, out of exile God calls Moses up onto a mountain, right? And he gives Moses the law and he's gone for a really long time. And the people wig out, Right? They need something to look to. And that's even the question. Where has he gone? We have nothing to look to. And what do they do? They make an idol, a golden calf. Like that's something. There. We can put our faith in something. We have to have something that we can look to to put our faith in. And Apollos gives us Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful. He's holding him out as an example. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, God. And you know, it's really interesting. I mean, if you think about this, and this is an idea that I don't, I don't want to confuse too much. Jesus is the poster guy for faith. And if you think back on the life of Jesus, I think sometimes, you know, in a lot of ways, the life of Jesus is not how I would paint it if I wanted people to have faith in it. If I wanted people to just go, ah, it's cool. I'm going to go plow ahead. No problems, no worries, hakuna matata. It's just not the way it works because if that were true, why would Jesus say such things as this? As he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And this cup is, is a reference to his death on the cross. If it's possible, Father, take. And, and he sweat. He sweats, what? Blood talk about anxiety. You talk about stress. Or even on the cross, which puzzles scholars and people of faith to this day. What does Jesus say from the cross? My God, my God, what? Why have you left me? If the, this is one of those evidences that just lets me know Jesus is true. Because if I were a guy wanting to paint a, a perfect picture of faith for someone to follow, I'd make Jesus like a drone. He'd be lobotomized. He'd be no fear, no panic, no worries whatsoever. He'd just be like, sure, I'll go do that. That's cool. But that's not Jesus. What do we see about Jesus? He struggles. And we can identify with him. He struggles in faith to the point of sweating blood, of crying out to the Father, where are you? This can't be. Faith is complicated. Faith isn't unquestioning. Faith doesn't mean that you don't doubt. Jesus doubted. Jesus had faith crisis moments. And if, you know, if anybody should have faith crisis moments, shouldn't it be Jesus? I mean, we all panic because we can't see what's up ahead on the road. And guess what Jesus could do? He could see clearly what waited for him at the end of his road. It's no mystery for him. He knows exactly where he's going. 
And if Jesus is permitted to doubt, to have crisis of faith, so are we. We can't possibly be expected to you know, supersede Jesus in our faith. Malcolm Muggeridge says that he rather believes in doubting. It's sometimes thought, he says, that it's the antithesis of faith. But I think it's connected with faith. Something actually that St. Augustine said, which he did, like, you know, reinforced concrete. And you have those strips of metal in the concrete which make it stronger. There's a saying that we often utter, to err is what? Human, but to forgive is divine. We want a new one. To doubt is human. But to follow faithfully in spite of the doubt is divine. Jesus followed and he trusted God in the midst of doubt. The opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's hardness of heart. God's not mad that Israelites are doubting and that they're having crisis of faith moments, but he's saying, keep coming. Keep following. Don't let your heart be hardened so that you fall into unbelief. Jesus stayed the course that God had set before him. He didn't harden his heart. He didn't rebel. He didn't turn back. And he was like us. He was human. He had to be. Otherwise, what would our inspiration be? I mean, if, if Jesus was just not human, but purely God, we could have no way of identifying with him, no way of moving forward, no way of looking to him for inspiration. Someone who was human had to walk the walk of faith, had to complete the journey for us. And Jesus has done that. Jesus can't be a superhero. He can't be not from this world entirely. He has to be human. You know, Superheroes only work as inspiration for children because children are the only ones on this planet who don't know yet that they're human. We are painfully aware of it. And we fall. And we stumble. And we have to have a Jesus who walks before us, who is human, who gets back up, who follows all the way the, the road that God is calling him on. What is it that we fear most? usually just our own existence, that somehow it's going to cease, that someday, maybe soon, we'll die, and we don't know what it's like around the corner. There's this joke that Seinfeld has. He says that public speaking and death, and in that order, are the things, or the top two fears for most people, which means that given the choice at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. We fear death and public speaking more than that. But Jesus, he's our humanity. We didn't cover this much, but in chapter two, at the end of um, that chapter, we see that by his death, Jesus became humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power over death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And I would add the world. Jesus stared death in the face. He knew it was coming, and he followed God, and he trusted him anyway. 
Later on in this book, Hebrews chapter 11, a lot of us who've spent time in church know Hebrews chapter 11 because there's all these wonderful people of faith. Moses, Abraham, Noah, Abel, on and on and on it goes with all these people who had faith in God who followed. And guess who's at the top of that list at the head? It's Jesus. We call that sometimes in life, you go to seminary, they call it the, um, the graduating class of faith. And Jesus is at the head of the class. And he faced what no one had to face and did it anyway. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything, Apollos will say, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him. God calls each of us into unfamiliar territory. If we're coming out of slavery to the world and we're being led towards what we really are, freedom in Christ, we don't know that road. We've never been on that road. Every step we take on that is always going to be new road. And we cannot become paralyzed by our fear of unfamiliar territory. We have to look to Jesus who walked it for us and before us. And it's nothing, nothing, he says, is more important than that we complete that road. That you complete your road that's been marked out for you. That I complete my road that's been marked out for me in faith. Hand the rudder. Hand the steering wheel whatever your implement of driving is, hand it over to God and let him drive. Faith is a thing of a heart and the mind. And if you do not believe that God is in control and that he has formed you for a purpose, then you will flounder on the high seas of purposelessness. You will drown in the currents and the drifts. God has made it imperative, I want to repeat his words, that in the design of life that we become willing to trust beyond ourselves. And while we may not know where it's going, we can always look back and see where God has been. Is that not true in your lives? Can, I think each of us, as I talked with lots of you guys in our, in our congregation, our community, can say that I don't know where I am right now. But I know that when I look back, I can see that God has intended every single thread None of these moments have been by chance or have been random. God's intended them, and they've made me into what I am now. For some reason, the law of trust seems to be that often I can, I can only really see by looking back. I can only really see in, in retrospect, in hindsight. And maybe this is by design. Think about Moses. I, I, I've got to think that the writer of the Hebrews is writing this, and they've got Moses on the brain, you know? Think about Moses. When Moses was called by God, what is Moses' first question to him? Who are you? And when Moses says, here's what I want you to do, he says, okay, how do I know that it's really you? Because what you're calling me to is scary. And here's God's answer. After you have entered the land, 
you will know it is I who has called you. Looking back, when you see the evidence, then you will know after that I have called you, but follow now anyway. If you're looking for a book, something to read outside of the scriptures that will just hopefully encourage you in your walk, read The Grand Weaver by Rabbi Zacharias. And basically the whole book is him looking at a tapestry as a metaphor for what God does with our life. And he observes this, this art of weaving these tiny, seemingly insignificant threads, millions of them together. And to watch that as they get strung together, a picture emerges. And he says, that's a picture of our life with God. I can't identify the thread in isolation and make sense of it. But when I look back and see how God has woven my tapestry together, I will be encouraged in my faith in him. I will see what he is making. And he says, once you begin to see God's hand in your life, you will know his workmanship is within you. I, I do not hold myself up as the poster boy for faith. I have struggled many times and still do in my life in faith. I can remember one incident where I was, my, probably my first real episode of faith after I had recently come to Christ. And Jesse and I had just finished school. We were married less than a year. And we were in Virginia I'm just really sensing this call of God to go to seminary and to go into ministry vocationally. And I remember thinking, uh, you have called the wrong guy. Surely this is Josh you're talking to. You know this, right? I'm not, I'm not built for that. that. That's for guys like Richard White to go into. That's not for me, you know? That's, that's like C.S. Lewis guys. I'm not that guy. And we just could not ignore the call. And I remember once, uh, it was a bizarre day. We called Steve and Carrie because we were, went to school with Steve and Carrie. You know, you're, you're a chaplain if you're at Montreat and one of our preachers if you're here at Eyesight. And uh, we all kept tabs with life. We talked to each other and said, you're not going to believe this, but we're, we're going to go to seminary. And... Um, they said, that's crazy. So are we. And then they were like, wow, where are you going? Any ideas? And they said, yeah, we're going to Portland, Oregon. And I said, whoa, so are we. And, you know, how are you going to go there? How is this going to work? We have no idea. But I was really encouraged by Steve's faithfulness, by Carrie's faithfulness. They said, we're going. We don't know. We have no money. Our car's on its last leg, but we're going. And God's called us there. And I remember putting down the phone and going for a drive with Jess. And I remember saying, Jess, I'm scared to death of packing up and heading out across country with little to no money and going to seminary for something I'm not even sure that I should be doing. And we looked at each other and said, you know what? This is a moment of, of looking back and having faith. Where on our journey thus far has God ever let us down? 
And we weren't able to come up with a single one. And he said, he's calling us here. Let's go. And it helped us Stephen even care we're going. We said, they're going. They're, they have faith. They're going. We can have faith too. We can believe in God and his faithfulness and his goodness. And I wouldn't be here right now if it hadn't been for that trip and that decision and that moment on I-95 in horrible, miserable traffic and go all the way across to Portland, Oregon and come all the way back and, of course, Pittsburgh, California, Florida, in between. But now here. And as I look back on all that, all I can give credit to is the faithfulness of God. Every thread of that tapestry has been intentional, has been deliberate, and every thread of your tapestry is too. For we know, Paul says, that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That is his promise to you and me. He calls us. We don't know what it's like, but we are safe in his hands. We can follow him. We can respond to his call. You will not regret it. Promise from the Lord, not just from me and my own experience. You will not regret it. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess our, our fears to you. And we don't do so with shame. You've shown us in your son that it is, it is no shame to fear. It is no shame or sin to doubt. But only a sin if we harden our hearts towards you and turn away from you and refuse to follow where you lead. We want to hand over our wheel to you, our rudder, our sail. Let you drive. Let you be the pilot of our life. To willingly take the passenger seat and not grab hold of the wheel when, it, when it's panic time. When crisis comes, when waters rise, because we know that you never let go of us. You have shown yourself to be good and true. You have never failed us. Father, help us all to respond in faith to you. Help us to follow your call for us. It is not easy, we know. It is not without some treachery. But you promise that along this road, you hold us all the while in your hand, that you will see us to the end, that we will be glorified, that we will know life and life to its fullest now and new life to come in the resurrection. And that when we look back, we will see it has been worth it and that you have been stringing the tapestry of our life together and that not a single thread has been by chance or has been random or has been strung by anybody else but you. We are yours. Lift us up. 
bring us along the road of faith in you. Help us bring each other along the road and encourage each other with our own stories of your faithfulness, of your goodness to us. Let us love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strengths. Make our weakness into strength in you. You have promised. You are faithful. You are the author and perfecter of faith and of our faith. We give you praise. Amen.